You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Four-hour waits to vote? Yep, it happened. County election officials are caught flat-footed with the last-minute surge on some islands. Common Cause warned of this scenario and even considered legal action over it. Sandy Ma is the executive director of the watchdog group Common Cause. We were very concerned about long lines uh, forming at voter service centers on election day for the August and general elections. We had seen this on the mainland, you know, during voting time, and so we were very concerned about this happening here. And so we had uh, written letters to uh, all elected officials and our elections officials asking for more voter service centers. We started raising this alarm right after uh, we learned that there was only going to be eight statewide. This was uh, back in 2019. You know, we had pushed for legislation during the 2020 legislative session uh, asking for more voter service centers and drop boxes. We were unsuccessful, but between the August primary and the general election, more drop boxes were added statewide, which we were very happy to see. But we definitely needed more voter service centers on election day for the general election. There were uh, we had volunteers on neighbor islands and on Oahu, and we, we saw lines pretty much statewide. Let's go island by island. I mean, what did you hear, like, say, from Maui? So Maui Island had one voter service center, and our volunteers uh, reported lines stretching down the block where the one voter service center is located, and lines up to, like, two hours in the hot sun because there's no shade where that voter service center is located. And so it, so our uh, volunteers got water and got snacks just to keep the people hydrated <laughs> and uh you know, with a little bit of uh, snacks during the day. And so, yes, it, it was quite hot at the Velma McWain Voter Service Center. What was the snapshot on uh, Hawaii Island? There was lines in the morning at the Kona Voter Service Center, which uh, actually led to some people getting kind of testy. So there was some uh, testiness going on. There were lines at the uh, Hilo Voter Service Center all day, is what uh, we heard from our volunteers. Lines stretching around the block, just snaking around the building. So yeah, this was all day long is what we heard from our volunteers at the Alpuni Center. But no lines, no, the wait times did not even begin to compare to what we saw on Oahu at uh, Kapolei and Honolulu Hale. Kapolei by far um, had the longest lines with four plus hours. I know there was some concern about social distancing, uh, physical distancing. Well, what we had heard was when it got dark, it was very hard to keep social distancing and physical distancing because it was dark and people were just milling around. And so that just got, uh, that just made matters even worse. I hope people were masked. For the most part, we saw that, uh, and from what our volunteers reported, that people were masked and people were keeping apart. But like I said, when the sun went down uh, and it got dark, it became harder to separate uh, because the lighting was bad. People just started milling around. People's tempers got a little frayed. You know, it, it just, it was a long day and people, elections officials had worked a long day. It just, just became harder for everyone, as you could possibly imagine. And I think the election staff, you know, really tried to do what they could to encourage voters to get out early. You know, they had the lead time up to the actual voting day where folks could come down. But still, you're going to get the crowd that likes to, to wait to the last minute. Um, that is true. You know, there was a public education campaign, especially for the first time, Voting by Mail, Common Cause, also did a public education campaign letting people know that they should vote by mail, vote early for their health and safety of themselves, their family, and for the community. But 
We do have same-day voter registration and voting in Hawaii, and so people can go and register to vote in person. And also with the pandemic, this has caused people to lose their jobs and to have to move. And ballots are not forwardable by law, and so people may not realize that that their ballots cannot be forwarded. So even if you move and you put in a change of address, your ballots don't follow you. And so people would have to go to the voter service center and vote in person. And these are these little things that that happen. You know, we are in a pandemic and these things happen. We do have a really high population of homeless, houseless, and unsheltered. How are you going to get a ballot if you don't have a stable address, if you don't have a mailbox for mail to be mailed to? And so people have the constitutional right to vote. And so they're going to go in person to a voter service center. And you're probably going to say, why not go uh, the 10 days when the voter service centers were open? It takes time. It takes money uh, to get transportation to these areas, especially when there's so few. We also have the national rhetoric coming down, calling into doubt our vote by mail, wrongfully calling into doubt the vote by mail process, which is incredibly safe and secure and the best way to vote now, and also the national destabilization of our postal service, and so which kind of forced people, some people, to have to go in person to vote in person. In some counties, like Hawaii County, there are 16 charter amendments, and it takes time to kind of study them, and it's great that we have time to study the charter amendments at home with vote by mail. But, you know, at some point, maybe you go in person to vote because uh, time has run out to return your ballot. We needed more voter service centers. It was anticipated that this was going to happen. It was foreseeable. This is the most important elections of our lifetimes that has been stated over and over again for a very long time. We knew the pandemic was coming. Uh, It's been here with us for a while. We've been sounding this alarm that we needed more voter service centers. So we need more voter service centers. We need more drop boxes. Um, So, yeah. (laughs) I know. Unfortunately, the the next election is several years away. But now's the time to prepare. Now's the time to find out where's the best place to situate um, additional voter service centers, additional drop boxes. We could study, learn from this election and be prepared. And the state's chief elections officer, Scott Nago, plans to meet with the county clerks to find out what he can do to avoid the late crowds, which delayed the counting of the returns. We did hear from Glenn Takahashi, the city clerk of Honolulu. He spoke with HPR's Casey Harlow about what went wrong. We really got hit on the last day by people who just, a lot of them who just decided that, hey, election day is the day that something has to be done. And that's the only day that I kind of want to do it. And so they came down, and they really showed up in droves. Uh, That's a good thing, obviously. Service centers uh, made up about 4% for us of the total persons voting. So 96% of the persons voted either returning it by mail or using our drop boxes. So, so, you know, when we look at that kind of numbers, we're like, well, most of the the voters are, are, you know, embracing the mail process. What we also saw on election day was a little bit more processing heavy, um, processing intensive transactions for the voters, a lot more election day registration and voter registration updates on election day as opposed to previous days leading into election day. And so that takes a little bit more time and affects our throughput as well too. 
I mean, we know that that's the purpose of the voter service centers, to do those types of updates. Um, and then uh, when we got hit on the last day, we were like, wow, we knew there was going to be a bump, but uh, we're a little bit surprised. We were going at roughly 300 voters per hour as far as servicing goes. And, you know, and if you just kind of do the math, it's going to take more than the, the given 12 hours to, to um, process, you know, 4,520 people. So that's, that's what caused the delays, um, you know, and, but the credit goes to the staff. They persevered and the voters who were really um, very gracious and patient uh, with us. And, uh, but, you know, we, we made a commitment to getting through it and we were the last to close. But the other islands, nobody closed at 7, right? Everybody closed late. I think uh, Kauai was probably first, and then Maui, and then Big Island uh, went till at least 8.30, and then we, we followed after that. Honolulu uh, closed down first, and then Kapolei later on in the evening, probably around the 11 o'clock hour or so. Yeah, we got to compare notes with them, but the phenomena, if you will, I think, was statewide, and so we got to look at this and, and, and see what we learn from it. And Takahashi addressed the idea of adding more service centers to ease delays for same-day voting. Opening more voter service centers could have just perhaps just distributed the problem or the, the crowds over multiple locations, and I don't think voters load balance for us, if you will, right? So the solution to the problem is a lot more nuanced than, well, just add three more and your problem is solved. Voter service centers are not as easy as running a polling place where, you know, a polling place services a geographic area and there are only a certain amount of voters in that geographic area that can partake of the services at that location. So there's a whole lot of uncertainty of the numbers as far as how many people may show up at this particular service center, but we're going to take a look at that. I know it's going to be a, an item of discussion probably in next year's legislature, but I would caution on thinking that that's the only solution to what occurred. Every election is different, right? In the primary election, you know, in total over the 12 or 13 days, we only serviced 3,000 people. Clearly, there wasn't a whole lot of need perhaps for even two service centers in the primary election, given that kind of a number. But in the general election, the number bumped up to a total of 17,195. And, of course, we know it was going to go up, right? It's a presidential election, which always shows more interest, you know. But how do you allocate the, the proper amount of resources with that kind of really wide, varying usage data? And that's the challenge that we as administrators are in. We've got to scale it properly. But it may not be formula-based. That's the thing, right? It could be with the types of equipment we employ or putting out a, a couple more extra computers or whatnot. So, again, the solution is, is nuanced and not based upon a simple formula, you know, that add two more and you'll be fine. I think if we just go on that kind of simplistic way, you know, we could make things worse, actually, and we certainly don't want to do that. We've been hearing from Honolulu City Clerk Glenn Takahashi and Common Causes Sandy Ma about the problems on election night and what can be done to fix it next time around. Ma does plan to ask lawmakers to mandate changes.
Support for HPR comes from Alexander and Baldwin, owners and managers of office, industrial, and retail properties across the state. A&B, building partnerships in Hawaii for 150 years with a commitment to provide for the needs of island communities. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Andrew Forstoffel, author of Walking to Listen, and next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about my 4,000-mile walk across America. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. On Tuesday, over 60% of Maui voters approved a charter amendment that would create a Maui County Department of Agriculture. The proposal says that the department would be an advocacy group and would not be another regulatory body. Among its duties would be to create a sustainable regional agricultural system for Maui County. Shane Sinensi is Maui County's councilman representing East Maui. He was recently re-elected on Tuesday. He introduced a charter amendment proposal to the county council and talked with our producer Jason Ubai this morning. We did have a lot of questions about the charter. However, the main uh, concerns about creating a new Department of Agriculture was, of course, the COVID-19. Yeah? During this global pandemic, we've seen imports shipping into uh, Hawaii rise, including the Young Brothers, 46%, everything being shipped into Hawaii. Uh, we've seen some of the local disasters that happen around the globe. And so food security has always been um, an issue for us uh, should the shipping lanes either end. Uh, as you know, 90, upwards of 90, 95% uh, is from the mainland, uh, from the U.S. mainland, and so you know, over 5,000 miles away. And so if those ever get uh, disrupted, I think people on Maui have always looked to, to see that our food security and our resilience on the island is secured. So that was the main impetus of creating a Department of Agriculture. And it looks like the voters, 60% uh, of our voters agree that we should strengthen our food security here on the island. Because of the global pandemic, I think if we've had this discussion any other time outside of a global pandemic, um, I don't think we would have gotten the the approval and the consent uh, that we've we've gotten, you know, the pandemic has just revealed some of these shortfalls that we live in, uh, living um, on an island in the middle of the ocean. So I, I think if we weren't in a global pandemic, we wouldn't have had the success that we've seen. I think everyone is concerned about feeding, feeding our, our residents and the community for many generations to come. How does this differ from the State Department of Ag and the USDA, and how do you see it complementing those other two levels of government? The State Department of Ag Agriculture has a preemption of a lot of different things, and some of the concerns from uh, farmers was that we would be duplicating uh, some of the services. And so that's why within the charter, um, we changed a lot of different things, right, addressing this very issue. One of the changes that uh, got a lot of support is that this department does not create any more regulatory barriers onto farmers. Farmers had gone ahead and, and let us know, hey, we've, we need more funding, more grant funding, but we don't have the time. We're out there in the fields planting, and then we got to come home and write grants to see if we can get additional supports. 
So a lot of farmers supported that this charter uh, create more ombudsman and more advocacy at the county level to help farmers with some of these with the U.S. grant. So you're correct. It's supposed to be in to work in conjunction with uh, the federal and state programs. As you know, the state puts less than a half percent of its budget into agriculture, into the, our agriculture sector. So some of these shortfalls, uh, we're trying to promote, many farmers are promoting that should the state put, and I know at this time the state is lacking funds, but just increasing some of that funding into our agriculture sectors can go a long way. Other, other counties have shown that uh, when they invest into their agriculture sectors, you know, they create more jobs. They create more community resiliency. There's more uh, diversification of the economy. There's, no, there's more value-added products. So that was one of the reasons why we got so much support, that we strictly put the wording into this department that we don't create more regulatory barriers for farmers and that we increase advocacy for farmers so that they can help with, with more funding. The Maui County, we already put over $8 million into agriculture grants and funds. So we already invest upwards of $8 million for, for small farmers, for their operations, to pay for their their workers and to pay for their grant writers. So we already do that, but, but that office uh, falls under the Office of Economic Development. And so we're looking to, with a new department, we've got people that are already working on agriculture grants uh, that could be strictly working in their own department and working directly with farmers. I think this was the misconception about the charter there has been no monies allocated for this department. It'll come under the purview of the mayor. So the mayor will set how much money he wants to put towards this department, how big the department should be, if he wants to put just a few people and start off small, of course, and then eventually grow the department uh, to benefit our, our farmers here, here on the island. So, and also it, it's not until now that it's been adopted it's not for another two years so we've got some time to transition and to build the department of some of our smaller departments uh, in the county uh, we spend maybe seven hundred thousand dollars to a couple million dollars for some of the smaller departments here and so the flexibility is that we can build the department as we see where we want to put our strengths, resources, and funding towards. That was Maui County Councilman Shane Sinensi, who introduced the proposal to create the Maui Department of Agriculture. One group that opposed the measure was the Maui County Farm Bureau. In September, it polled its members, which include large and small farmers and ranchers, and over 80% of them opposed the new department. Warren Watanabe is the head of the Maui Farm Bureau. He shared their concerns. With the new county ag department, um, I think, you know, if it's just going to be for advocacy and promoting agriculture in the county, we're fine with that part of it. But the concern is that can the county afford another department? And the reason why we bring that up because there are already uh, partnerships with other agencies, for instance, like 
there's there's partnership with the University of Hawaii, the College of Tropical Agriculture and Human Resources. They do provide technical help to for our agricultural industry in Maui County and across the state. So is the proposal for the department, are they going to hire these technical personnel? And again, you know, right now we refer, they refer to the University of Hawaii, so why do we need a new department? And there are other resources agencies that we uh, county partners with. Uh, for instance, there's also the soil water conservation districts that bring in cost share funds going directly to farmers and ranchers. And money provided to the county helps farmers prepare conservation plans and make them eligible for federal assistance. So will the funding to the districts continue? Again, you know, with the with COVID and everybody's concern about you know funding in government, you know, from federal, state and, and down to the counties, are the resources available to fund all these um requirements in the new department and you know basically that's it and as you we are aware all aware the county gets their funding basically from real property tax and you know the farmers and everybody else again because of the current situation are they is it fair to raise the property tax for not just for agriculture but for all the different categories and of course the final concern i think is Regulatory authority. Many of the ag rules involve technical knowledge, and right now, you know, the Hawaii Department of Agriculture is the agency or the department responsible for regulations over agriculture. Would be duplication of efforts, and I think those are kind of issues that need to be worked out. Now that the um, initiative has passed, and we'll be seeing right. uh, Maui. Right. Ag department uh, in the next two years. What is uh, what are your next steps? Um, I guess we would see um, um, try to try to work with the um, county county council and the mayor. Um, see what the department is going to look like. Help to develop uh, the structure of the department. You know the initiative did pass, so and so we need to um, I guess develop a plan of action. How to how to make it work for all of agriculture in the county. And again. We understand the concern about food security. And in order to be food secure, all the components need to be in place. And it's, you know, it's, and it's a policy decision by the county. For instance, um, ag water rates, land, and values, all of these need to be uh, discussed and worked out. And as you know, agriculture is a low profit margin <laughs> industry. And that's why you need, I mean, I think. The community really needs to get behind it if this is where they want agriculture to be. But I, I think they need to recognize that there are all types of production methods and there are all different sizes of farms, and all of this needs to be put together to make it so it's a win for everybody, from the industry to the community. That was Warren Watanabe, executive director of the Maui County Farm Bureau, talking about his group's concerns with the voter-approved Maui County Department of Agriculture.
is now time for our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Bee. Brittany Light has a story that looks at the suicide rates so far this year. Good morning, Brittany. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So your story, um, you know, looks at the the numbers. I mean, we've heard about how a lot of the crisis calls uh, into those lines are, are, are up, but you were looking at hard data. Yes. So Hawaii mental health professionals have been preparing for a surge in mental health needs uh, during this pandemic period. Um, but we do now have some preliminary data from the Hawaii Health Department, and it shows that suicide deaths in our state have actually um, decreased slightly during the coronavirus pandemic. Um, it looks at month-over-month numbers from April to September, um, and during that six-month period, it shows that there were 76 suicide deaths. Um, now, that compares to an average of uh, 94 suicide deaths in the um, five-year period before. So it, it appears to be a, a slight decrease. Um, at least it certainly doesn't show a big spike like a lot of mental health professionals were predicting. Yeah, I mean, that is surprising because you think if, if the calls for help on the suicide crisis lines, you know, are going up, you know, you kind of you wonder about the outcomes, but maybe it means that, uh, you know, enough people are reaching out for help um, and are getting the help they need. Right. I think I think no one's quite too sure what this means yet. Um, there are a lot of different caveats when you're looking at this data. It could mean, like you say, that you know, there's more public awareness about mental health. People are really um, doing more to, to seek treatment. There's now telehealth for psychiatric care during the pandemic. So maybe people are taking better care. Um, it could also mean that, um, you, you know, suicide deaths are not the only marker of uh, a, a mental health crisis. Um, for every one suicide death in Hawaii, the state health department uh, says that there are approximately four to five suicide attempts. So this report doesn't track that at all. Um, there are all these other indicators of, of people struggling. Um, and the other important caveat is that this data is just preliminary. It sometimes takes months to determine whether a suicide really is a suicide. Um, you know, determining a cause of death is not always easy. So it's possible that these numbers could actually be higher um, with time. And you had a, a breakout line in your story. It says, in Hawaii, one person dies by suicide every two days. Yes, that's the, the statistic. So our state certainly has a struggle with suicide. Um, I think the experts that I spoke to said they're cautiously optimistic uh, when they see this data um, and at least encouraged that it doesn't show a clear increase in suicide deaths during this pandemic, such a difficult time for so many people. Um, you know, and there's, there's also some interesting, uh, gr a growing body of research that shows that suicide isn't just a mental health problem. It, it is that, and it can be that, but there are all of these uh, research, uh, a growing amount of research that links financial stress to a rising suicide rate. So there are just so many causes, it's very complicated to, to uncover. 
And from time to time, we get these clusters. I know a couple of years, I think there were a number of suicides on Molokai, and that kind of shook everybody up. But we also had it here um, this year, too, right? Yes. On Kauai in May, there were four suicide deaths within a seven-day span. That's highly unusual. Uh, these were four young men. It was really tragic for you know this small island community. And it, it raised a lot of questions. Is coronavirus-related stress uh, causing these suicides? Is it contributing to the cause of these suicides? And, you know, those, those questions are just so hard to answer. Yeah, I mean, the suicide picture is really pretty complicated, isn't it? It is. Uh, you know, there are factors like a history of depression or anxiety, financial struggles, drug use. Um, there's so many things that, that could contribute to, to someone wanting to take their life. Yeah, I, and I know your report uh, points out that the worst month uh, this year was February when there were 25 suicide deaths. Right. So in the months directly before this pandemic came to our uh, little archipelago shores, the suicide rate, according to this preliminary data, uh, appears to be um, kind of a little bit abnormally high. Um, so it's hard to know what to make of this. It could just be a blip, you know, when we, we look at this with more data from the rest of this year and early next year, maybe it doesn't indicate much. Um, but I think a lot of experts are hopeful that it could mean uh, that, that the rate is at least not increasing right now. All right. Interesting story. But thanks so much, Brittany. Thanks so much. That was reporter Brittany Light with the story about suicide numbers during this pandemic. To read her full story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Bank of Hawaii, committed to the community's safety and dedicated to customers' financial preparedness, offering the ability to bank from home with mobile and online services 24-7. BOH.com. Each week, Says You, Public Radio's game of words and wit, attempts to present a seamless professional presentation with varying results. Where are the words? The words are downstairs. This is not helpful. This is an embarrassing moment. <laughs> Perhaps you can tell them when these shows will air. And yeah. then you won't have ah. to do that. A teaching later. moment. Yes, a teaching <laughs> moment. And uh, I really don't know when these shows will air. Tonight is 6.30, following Marketplace. Support for HPR comes from ProService Hawaii, anticipating that more than 30% of Hawaii businesses are approaching health care renewal season. Now with a guide on how to balance business needs with caring for employees at proservice.com benefits. Agricultural officials are preparing to release rules to restrict movement of potentially infected coffee plants from island to island following the discovery of a devastating leaf rust that could wreak havoc on our coffee industry. Kevin Hoffman is a plant industry administrator with the State Agriculture Department. He says the two worst pests that threaten farmers are the coffee boar beetle, which has already made its way here, and the coffee leaf rust, despite efforts to keep them out of the islands. It was first found on a small farm in the Haiku area, 
and subsequently we found it pretty much along the whole east coast. You know, we found it at a residence, we found it on several areas where feral coffee was growing. And then how did the one on the Big Island get discovered? For the Big Island, it was uh, in response to the, the, the one on Maui, which is the one where the grower turned in the samples. It was starting to, start, starting to affect their crop. In response to that, we started surveys on all islands. The first detection, or presumptive detection, again, hasn't been confirmed by USDA yet, but uh, was in uh, a res- an older residential neighborhood in Hilo. Just, uh, you know, these uh, coffee is grown all over the place. <laughs> you know, you have commercial plantings, you have lots of feral coffee, and you have lots of coffee uh, that's at residences just as ornamentals and stuff. And so the Hilo one was a, a kind of a drive-by, saw the coffee in the front yard, saw, saw some symptoms, and so collected the samples that way. So what should we be on the lookout for? If you have a coffee plant and it's starting to look distressed, how do you know if you've got rust? Rust has some uh, symptoms um, that are somewhat similar to a disease we already have here, which is Cercospora, a leaf spot. So it, it forms like uh, kind of yellowish lesions on the leaves, and then the, the centers can get brown. For the leaf spot, the Cercospora that we already have here, those lesions are usually fairly circular. For the, for the coffee rust, coffee leaf rust, the um, lesions are often irregular. Okay, and the best thing to do is what, just uh, strip the plant of its leaves and bag it properly? The leaf rust is highly mobile. You can pick it up by just brushing against one of these lesions. It also, it also moves by wind, and, and also when it rains, uh, the, the raindrops can move it around. And so it's uh, airborne and uh, waterborne. So you have some diseased leaves, you take the diseased leaves off, but the spores are probably still there on other parts of the plant just because they haven't blown there. I guess the best thing, though, if, if you see something, you probably want to just uh, get a sample of it and take it into somebody yeah, who knows. And, and what we're asking people to do, because we don't want them to spread it around, is to take pictures of, of the symptoms and then email those to us. And from those, we can get a good idea whether it probably is or probably isn't, and then we can arrange to get a sample if we think it is, just to minimize movement of the of the, the rust around the island. Talk about the damage that this leaf rust has caused in other places where they've got a thriving coffee industry. Yeah, so the uh, the disease basically causes necrosis on, on the leaves, and so the leaves gradually lose the ability to photosynthesize, and that, that kind of cuts off the energy to the plant, causes the leaves to drop off, the plant goes into decline, doesn't produce berries like it used to, and it can result then in the death of the plant too. So in, in some areas, they've documented uh, crop loss from between 30 to 80%. And that's scary if you're talking Kona yeah. coffee and Hawaii coffee in general. Right. So, gosh, so how early then did we find this on Maui? Do you know? It, it's hard to say. I know we, we have records that University of Hawaii went through that area, but didn't necessarily stop at, I think I stopped at one location during a, a island-wide survey back in 2015 and didn't see any. But again, if it was at a low level, they might not have. Yeah, it's really hard to say how, how, how long it's been here, but certainly I think been here more than a year. Okay, but currently then we have uh, started doing surveys of just coffee on all the islands. Right. What we're trying to do is not spread it around. So we're doing surveys like residential areas and wild areas, feral coffee, then asking growers to survey their own, their own fields because we don't really want to be going in, picking up accidentally in one grower's field and transporting it to another. And how do we treat this rust? Um, there's a number of uh, insecticides that are registered for use against it. They, most of them are based on copper. And actually, they're, they're, registered, they're also effective against the Cercospora 
leaf spot. So that's why they're registered in Hawaii already. Okay, so they just need to check with the agriculture department about what the best. Yeah, we have we have a, uh, actually working closely with the uh, University of Hawaii Cooperative Extension Service. Andrea Kawabata is the uh, coffee specialist with them. She just posted on her website some management guidelines that, that, that has a list of registered pesticides. Okay, and is there anything else that you're asking people to be uh, on guard for? Yeah, just again, kind of, kind of be aware of potential symptoms on their plants, and if they do see those, take pictures and send them in to us. Does this rust spread mainly during wet season? It, can, it spreads during wet season. It actually does better in high, high, higher humidity. So if it's if it's kind of rainy for a few weeks, that's good for the rust. But it's also windborne. It can spread. You know, get a windy day, and it's going to move it around. And then it's also you pick it up just by uh, contacting uh, a lesion. So you take you on your clothes, you can move it that way, or on vehicles that where it gets blown onto. So it's a very, very difficult thing to try and contain because of that, because it has so many ways to disperse itself. Okay, but just it's just bad news, just you know, between the coffee borer and this thing. Right, Ugh. and they kind of attack two different parts of the plant, but they have the same effect because the coffee berry borer attacks the the bean itself, so it damages it directly. This attacks the rest of the plant, especially the, you know, the leaves, so it knocks down the energy that the plant is producing, so it produces fewer beans. Uh, so it weakens it in general. Yeah, so it's get, the plants are getting hit by two different ways. We're working on trying to, on rules to restrict uh, movement of articles that might be um, infested with the fungus from areas where we know it's at, for example, Maui and the Big Island, to uh, those, those islands where we haven't found it yet. For example, Oahu and Kauai. That was Kevin Hoffman, Plant Industry Administrator with the State Department of Agriculture. He was talking about, uh, uh, you know, how he hopes to curb the spread of coffee leaf rust that has been confirmed on Maui. It's currently awaiting verification of a suspected case in Hilo on the Big Island. For links, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with three new exhibitions at HOMA First Hawaiian Center Downtown, featuring works by Hawaii artists. More at honolulumuseum.org. Imagine a group of engaged peers who get together to connect with each other, to celebrate and support our community, and to have a good time. You've just envisioned Generation Listen, an HPR project that connects younger listeners with the station and each other. It's a group that's welcoming, diverse, and lively, and we want you to be a part of it. We're always looking for new members and for volunteers interested in joining our leadership team. Follow us on social at HPR Gen Listen. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the global MBA with 21-month, 24-month, and 36-month options. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. 
We brought you a story yesterday about a Maui persimmon farmer who's still harvesting fruit from family trees planted about 100 years ago. You know, our state's overall economy has been likened to a three-legged stool. Tourism is one leg, the military is another, and construction is the third. We recently talked with Jason Fujimoto, CEO of HPM Building Supply. The fifth-generation Big Island Company has managed to expand its footprint across the state during this economic and health crisis. I'll say overall, I think we're very fortunate and blessed um, to be in the essential industry, you know, first and foremost, and second, to be you know, riding a, a national industry trend where um, anyone in the business of uh, home building or home remodeling you know, has actually uh, benefited from uh, this period of time. So it's, it's a very unusual period um, overall, you know, very different from the 2008-2009 uh, great financial crisis. That was a pretty much a blanket um, devastation to, to most industries. So a very unusual time, but again, we're very, we're very blessed and, and grateful. I think when we last talked to you last year, you folks were doing the modular homes and were, were really helping with our homeless situation with the tiny homes. Yes, we were. And that's you know our Holly Plus project uh, began you know out of you know that um, lava eruption back in 2018. So you know we. Continue to move forward on that. Um, you know, this year we're fortunate to also help out with County of Hawaii in two um, homeless shelters, one in East Hawaii and one in West Hawaii. So um, it's been great, and um, again, we continue to, to work toward um, you know, going to a public launch, um, hopefully by the end of the year. So talk about your expansion here on Oahu, because you basically doubled your footprint. Oahu right now is still very focus. You know, our original location in Campbell Industrial Park was pretty much a warehouse, a lumber yard, and we had a, a kind of a pro sales office. And 98% of our business was delivery based. You know, with our expansion and taking over the operation of Siwala, you know, we add um, some new categories um, in steel framing systems as well as drop ceiling um, systems, and can really service more of the commercial interior uh, business. So it's still, again, along the lines of focus but again I think our, our plans as a company is to kind of build out our full business model you know just like how we here have here on, on Hawaii Island where we're the most mature we have the largest locations and we cover hardware retailing to home design center to to the pro and we also have a big manufacturing component as well that's our overall plans um, but obviously right now we're you know, on a wall we're still very very pro focused and you folks just recently got the rights to be what exclusive uh, distributor for steel framing yes with um scafco out of uh, the pacific northwest so we're uh, we're, we're fortunate to have a very strong partner with them we, we also do um metal roofing we don't have a, a fixed roll former plant but we do have two or actually have three portable roll formers where we can do our um, standing steam uh, roofing profile and, and we do a lot of uh, residential but actually that's profile is geared more toward um, the commercial, the military, you know, bigger type uh, projects. What does this mean? Because you folks are, you know, a local company, a family company, and you've been able to just strengthen your position here across the state. You know, I think it's uh, it just goes back to our, our mission and, and vision as a company to really you know, help our community uh, build better and live better. We have uh, many loyal customers that actually do um, statewide type business. You know, for us, you know, we want to be able to provide you know, the same you know, breadth and depth of product you know, that we do here on the Big Island, you know, on all the major islands. So, you know, that in part also helps to fuel our, our, our growth and our um, you know, seeking you know, different opportunities across the islands. But 
again, you know, it goes back to um, you know a lot of gratitude for our own owner employees who, um, you know, especially during this time, being able to um, you know help us grow and, and pick up the pace, um, even when you know, other industries are going right the other way. So we're fortunate and, and very blessed. And you've recently merged with a concrete company. Yep, uh, Miyake Concrete on, on Maui. So we closed that on uh, August 24th. So still pretty fresh. Um, we're about a month into it right now. And talk about the the uh, operations there on Maui. W- what does that involve? Yeah, so Maui um, you know, with Miyake, we have four uh, retail stores slash lumber yards and, and one trust plant. So five um, additional locations for HPM on, on Maui. Um, you know, this conversation with the Miyake family actually started, you know, seven years ago back in 2013. So it's not, um, I guess it's fortuitous that it finally happened uh, this year, but it's not something that, you know, was thought of and executed solely in, in 2020. Again, this has been a long conversation uh, with the Miyake family. And in the end for HPM, you know, as we look you know, toward you know, the future and Further expansion, you know, this is a good example where it really boils down to alignment in values and kind of orientation, you know, to employees and to the community. And we felt, um, you know, very strong alignment uh, with the Miyake family, 40-year-old uh, business, deeply invested in the community, and really has a very deep care and concern for, for their employees and their customers, which, again, we feel is very similar to HPM. And that's why we felt very good about moving forward in this partnership with them. And then you also have a presence on Kauai. We do. We do. And that was um, established back in 2012, where we you know, merged with um, Kauai Lumber. And again, a very similar story. You know, the founder, Joe McAvoy, um, had been there for 18 years. And again, similar values, similar orientation, similar growth mindset. Um, and that created, again, the alignment to, um, to partner. Well, you'll have lots to celebrate as you mark your 100th anniversary next year. Yes, uh, we're, we're excited. Yeah, it's hard to believe 99 years to, you know, this year, and, and next year is our big, big 100. So, um, you know, it's still trying to figure out exactly what we want to do. And obviously, we don't know how, how long this pandemic will last um, and what we can do. But nevertheless, we're going to definitely celebrate and just you know, show a lot of appreciation for our community and, and our customers. Well, you know, hats off to you. I mean, when we look around and see, you know, our local family businesses, whether it's, you know, Waihata or Servco, City Mill, you know, homegrown, family roots, and a family business that, that positioned itself and is growing. Family-founded businesses that remain local are, are hard to find these days, and I'm getting less and less. So we're very fortunate and, and blessed. Like right now, we're... Um, we work with a lot of the big um, developers, with so D.R. Horn, Ho'opili, Castle Cook, Coral Ridge, and then you know all of the gentry um, projects in Kapolei. Um, we all um, participate in. Oh, we, okay. We the building industry in general, I think, is going to continue to be strong and, and, and really carry our economy from a statewide standpoint into the future. Right? I, I'm sure you've read some of the you know, statistics you know, from the state. We're still short, about 50,000 units by 2025. So we still need a lot of supply. And not just, you know, standard type homes, but, you know, affordable homes as well across all islands. So I think that alone is going to carry the industry for, you know, really at least through 2025. And then we also have, um, you know, a lot of the military work. The military mm-hmm. has invested uh, hundreds of millions of dollars this year in new projects that they're kicking off. 
So that's going to help carry construction as well. One interesting aspect when it comes to COVID-19 right, and, and why our industry has, has benefited, um, again, obviously, first and foremost, the fact that we're an uh, essential business and we weren't you know, shut down by the government, but the, the stimulus that was provided by the, the U.S. government um, was more than enough to offset the drop in, in GDP. Um, and, and in, in many cases, right, at the individual level, right, the stimulus checks that were provided actually, in, in, in a lot of cases, increased people's income right, versus decreased it. And then that, on top of the, the lower, very low interest rates, you know, all kind of came together to, um, you know, to help, help our industry. And then when you look at this, these dollars right, that are available and the fact that there's been a forced shutdown on restaurants and hospitality and travel, Right, people were able to kind of use those dollars instead of going on vacation. Right, they would go and um, and now invest it in their home. With work from home also being an increasing trend, renovating your space in your home office, all of that again really just came together to, to benefit the industry as a whole. Fujimoto, CEO of HPM Building Supply, talking about how it's been able to weather tough times and expand its family business across the state. HPM will mark its centennial in 2021. Well, that's it for today. Up tomorrow, we check in on the new Japan travel bubble and the progress of the pre-travel test program. What do you think? We'd like to hear your feedback. What do you think about the mail-in voting process and the election outcome? Call our talkback line or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.